I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics Podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. Okay. All right. We are on. I am here with Dr. Gary DeMar, who is the president of American Vision. Unless that's not the case, I know that there was a transition going on. I don't know the details of that. Are you still at, you're still ahead? I'm I'm back at American Vision. Um, I'm not the president yet, but I guess one day I I will be again. (laughs) I will be again. All right. Well, I, I advertised you as the president of American Vision, although, because, but we can adjust that later. So. Yeah, that's good. That, that's okay. good enough. Cool. All right. Well, doctor, uh, he's doctor, right? You have a doctor. Uh, just, just call me Gary. Gary. All right. Yeah, that's, that's a lot okay. easier. So, so um, Gary uh, is an author of how many books? How many books have you written? Uh, 35. 35. Oh, man, that's not that much. Yeah. Um, a lot of them uh, cover um, a whole bunch of topics. You're not just... Um, you know, focused on the area of eschatology, eschatology, which you're very known for. What are some other things you've written on? Well, the first books I wrote was a trilogy called God and Government, and I dealt with the premise that government isn't synonymous with politics. Okay. And that was just to kind of get Christians to understand that to be involved in government meant government under God, self-government, family government, church government. Uh, then most of my books have been pol- kind of polemical. They've been answering objections that people raised. I wrote another book called Myths, Lies, and Half-Truths, uh, which was an assessment of uh, uh, excuses that Christians use, biblical excuses Christians use for not being involved. You know, Jesus didn't get mixed up in politics. Politics is dirty. Our citizenship is in heaven. There's a, se- there's a separation between church and state. You can't impose your morality on other people. So I had 15 of these kind of cliches that Christians use for not being involved. Um, uh, did a book on memory, how to memorize things. I've always had trouble with that. Um, uh, a series of uh, uh, history books, American, American history. Did America's Christian history, the untold story. Oh, what else? Um, 
just you know just a little bit of everything what's your uh what's your favorite book that you've written well if, I, if all your books were to disappear in history and you're like uh -oh. I hope this one survives <laughs> well probably i think the one the two that have had the most Im impact have been the god and government which we put into a single volume now because that has been used by homeschoolers sure. uh, across the country for years and and last day's madness because most people who have you know kind of questioned their eschatological position that's the book that they've has you know impacted them the most is it's it's my it's my uh, marcellus kicks uh matthew 24 matthew 24 by marcellus kick is the book that brought me into a, a partial preterist perspective and i think a lot of people have, my book goes beyond what his does his just was on matthew 24 yeah. where my book deals with Matthew 24 plus a lot of other prophetic topics. Right. And for folks who aren't familiar with Last Day's Madness, what I, what what struck me when I read that as a dispensationalist, I was just shocked um, with, one, the dramatic claims you were making, like the tribulation already occurred, and, two, how much scripture you used to defend with the time text and then how you kind of explained and brought history together. As a dispensationalist, I almost had no connection with history. I knew almost nothing about the destruction of Jerusalem, so I couldn't even reflect upon the theological significance of that event. So of those uh, who may be watching, um, if, if you haven't read Last Day's Madness, it's an, ex an excellent book um, and is just filled with, uh, with scripture that backs up um, the points that are being made. So I highly recommend that book. And, um, and, my, and by the yeah. way, my there's really nothing in my book that's that's new. There might be a couple of uh, uh, ways that I explain things and maybe a little different interpretation of it. Sure. But I, I didn't. This isn't some new thing that I came up with. Uh, there's a right. lot been a long history of a uh, of of a preterist interpretation. Preterist is someone who believes that the it was a passage was prophetic at the time. Since it's been fulfilled, the fulfillment is in the past. And some of the greatest Bible commentators then. In the in the in the world, have held a preterist interpretation on Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Uh, not so not so much the Book of Revelation. Most of those were, I would say, more of historicist perspective. Uh, so there's not a it's not a new position. I'm not coming and say, look, I found something brand new, and you know you need to you need to come because everyone else has been wrong. Uh, and I, I'm I consider myself a popularizer. You know, kind of digging up the information. And making it uh, understandable for people who aren't really aware of what the issues are. Yeah, I think a lot of what you say in the book um, and in different contexts can come across as new, since many Christians have a very short memory in terms of church history. So I, I think it's important to re yes. remind people what you're saying is not something you just pulled out of a hat somewhere. Yeah, and that's why I not only quote scripture because every look everybody everybody who writes on prophecy is quoting scripture. Right. Uh, so I, what I try to do is to quote, quote more of it in context, take it seriously when Jesus said this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I don't marginalize uh, that passage by saying, well, it can't mean what it seems to mean. And I say it must mean what it seems to mean. I just got to figure out what it means and the context of all of that. Right. Uh, so I, I, you know, dispensationalists typically say it means the, you know this race or this type of generation or the generation that sees these signs and so forth and e in each of those cases you have to 
add stuff to the passage or and or take things away from the passage. And yet when you compare scripture with scripture, and that was the model that Marcellus Kick did. Marcellus Kick in Matthew 24, the reason it was so convincing to me is because he just interpreted scripture with scripture. He says, look, we've got this passage over here and this one over here. This this fulfills this. It's right. It's it's, it's as clear as day. Sure. So I try to do the same thing in, in all of my books. Yeah. And I think you do an excellent job. So we're going to we're going to focus a little bit more if, if people are, are listening, not really sure what you're referring to. Um, we'll get we'll kind of hash that out in a bit. But I want to kind of go uh, change topics and then we're going to get back into uh, the topic of eschatology. Um, but I want to start with apologetics. I think there's an interesting bridge between apologetics and eschatology, which a lot of people aren't familiar with. So um, let's start from kind of like apologetics 101, and then we'll work our way uh, into exploring um, how this connects with um, apologetic, um, eschatology rather. Um, how would you define, just for someone who's never heard of the, the word before, how would you define apologetics for us? Well, it's a biblical word, and it simply means to give a defense. And the, the, the word itself is neutral in terms of defense. Uh, you can be an apologist for the Democrat Party. You can be an apologist for the Republican Party. You can be a, an apologist for anything. And, and in biblical terms, it's a it's a legal concept that you are you are making your case to a higher authority or at least to a competing authority about your particular position, and you're offering the operating assumptions of that of that philosophy. Uh, that worldview and your and the underlying uh, uh, evidences that go along with those assumptions. Sure. And um, when when someone dives into apologetics, it's almost like walking into like you know, kind of walking on like a main street with a bunch of different dojos teaching different martial <laughs> arts styles, right? Um, yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Uh, what whether what are the, what are the different methodologies of apologetics, and how might that relate to our theology? You can kind of pick that apart at your own. Yeah, I, I think all of the all of the positions all of the positions are used in an apologetic methodology. It's the starting point in an apologetics methodology that's the most important point. Okay. Um, and you have you have to you have to begin where the Bible begins. The Bible does not begin with a defense of the existence of God. Uh, it doesn't deal with a series of evidences for the existence of God. It begins with an operating assumption that without God, nothing else is possible. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the fact of the matter is, if there isn't any God, there isn't any heaven and earth, and there's no creation of it. Uh, that's that's considered the, the presuppositional approach. That is, you start with the premise that God exists, you don't you don't begin by trying to defend it with uh, reason, although it's not that reason isn't important, or with certain evidences that are supposed to be neutral. If, you, if I just presented you with the evidence, then that person would believe. That just isn't the case. Right. And we, and we can see that in everything. You can see it on abortion, homosexuality, uh, economics, and so forth. All the evidences are there that certain things are right and true, but it's the operating presuppositions that are that are fundamental. So. Presuppositional model begins with the premise that God exists, and that His word is true. Uh, then there's the there's the kind of the classical approach to apologetics, where reasoned arguments are used. Now, there's nothing wrong with reasoned arguments, but those reasoned arguments have to be bound with operating assumptions that are fundamental to understand the idea of reason. Where did reason come from? Why is reason reasonable? 
the more fundamental approach is, okay, what are the operating assumptions? Well, God's reasonable. And the reason reason can be reasonable and the laws of logic work is because there's a God who is reasonable and logical. Hmm. And those the, the ability to reason, the ability to think logically is, is an extension of God's, God's own character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the um, uh, so that's kind of the kind of the rationalistic approach when you set reason off separate from those operating assumptions. Okay. Uh, and then there's the evidential argument for the for the, the, ev- the evidentialist says here is a pile of evidences and if these pile of evidences prove that God exists uh, again there's nothing wrong with evidences evidences that are tied to uh, the operating assumptions. Uh, if you don't, if you, for example, you can present the evidences in, that Jesus rose from the dead from Scripture, uh, but if you don't, if you don't begin with the premise that God can raise the dead, those evidences are explained away in all different types of ways. And it's not that people can't come to Christ through evidential apologetics or classical reason-based apologetics. But when you get down to it, you have you have to begin with the operating assumptions of an apologetic methodology. Now, you would identify yourself um, as a presuppositionalist, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, for those who, I know, I know people who will be listening to this either might not know what that means, and there will be a, a large variety of people who know precisely what you mean. And so um, how about we unpack that for uh, the layperson first? What is presuppositional apologetics? If you can dive into that just a, in a little bit more detail than you just already did, and then we'll kind of, I'm going to come back to this issue of evidence and how that fits into a presuppositional framework. Well, the word itself, one presupposes certain things to be true. Uh, they're, they're true because of the impossibility of the, of the contrary. That is, for, for example, a person who says reason is a standard by which we should prove the existence of God. Uh, a presuppositionalist will say, where did reason come from? Why is reason reasonable? Uh, the, and the, the operating assumption is, is that the reason reason works is because God is, in fact, the author of reason. He's a reasonable God. Um, we get mathematics from it, the laws of logic, uh, the ability to reason, and so forth. So it's, 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 they're just operating assumptions that there's no, there's no further back you can go in order to make a case for something if i if i operate a if i say that something is true presuppositionally if there's something that proves that presupposition then that's the ultimate presupposition right and that's why i again think the bible begins within the beginning god created the heavens and the earth that's the operational presupposition that the triune god is the author of all things he's the he's the creator and he is the one who infuses the world with logic and reason and the, the, the ability to think through issues and so forth. Everybody, everybody, uh, even the people who disagree with the presuppositionalist, R.C. Sproul, for example, who was a classical apologist, he admitted that we all begin with certain presupp- operating presuppositions. You, right. The person who believes that reason is the standard, what's the, he's using to do that? He's using reason to, use, right. to do that. So therefore, that's his operating presupposition. We as presuppositionalists would say, but why is reason, why does it work? Why is it operational and why is it reasonable? And we go back further to the- Now, would you agree, would you agree, and I guess I'm gonna gonna dare to use some philosophical terminology just for the way I'm thinking of it. 
Um, Dr. Sproul would have said that you start with reason because you have to reason in order to say anything to begin with. And we don't deny that as presuppositionalists, but would you, or am I correct in making a distinction between proximate starting points and ultimate starting points? Whereas approximate starting point would be my reason. Obviously I need to reason in order to even utter a sentence, but my ultimate starting point is the triune God who gives a rational context for me to reason to begin with. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'll, I'll give you a good example. I, this was years ago. My brother, I went to visit my brother in Houston, Texas, and he was going through, uh, he had been divorced and he was, he, he had his lawyer with him and my brother, we got in the elevator and um, he, my brother introduced me, my, 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 my brother's a writer, da, 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 and the Christian stuff and so forth. And as we got in the elevator and he's, he said, well, uh, well, do you believe in hell? And I said, well, on what basis are you going to determine whether something, something like hell exists or not? And I called it elevator evangelism because by the time we got into the elevator, he asked a question, the, the proximate assumption or the, the proximate presupposition, something about hell. And I took him all the way back to say, well, how do you determine whether there's something called hell or not? So right. by the time we got out of the elevator, I had taken them all the way back to the ultimate presupposition of what are you going to use to determine whether or not there is such a thing called hell? Right. And so you're right. We all begin at different different places, but ultimately we've got to take them back to the fundamental presupposition that makes the whole system work. Right. And I think a common a, a criticism, and maybe you could address this, is, well, if you're starting with God, uh, that obviously commits the fallacy of, of begging the question. You're engaging in circular reasoning. How would a presuppositionalist uh, respond to that? Well, I guess it depends on small circles and large circles. Uh, ultimately, everybody you know, gets back to their ultimate presupposition. The, reason, the guy who claims reason is, is the basis say, well, you're begging the question because you're using reason to try to prove that reason exists and, and fundamentally works. So it's it's the the large circle that you're everybody's going to get back to that large circle, and 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 finalize what it is. And so what what we as presuppositionists, what I as a presuppositionist says, says it's not that we don't that you don't reason or that you don't do moral things, and you don't use the laws of logic and so and so forth. The issue is how do you account for those things given your finite character, your uh, lack of knowledge of everything, and your inability to, to know everything and, and to reason fundamentally, independent of anything else. Sure. Uh, so everybody ultimately reasons in a circle. The question is, what is that circle and what is the basis of that circle? Someone says, well, I, my, my, <clears throat> my ultimate presupposition is uh, that you know the, the 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 moon is a living is a living entity, and I I get radio signals from the moon, and so that's that's how I reason. And so now what we need to do is we need to put that worldview to the test, put his ultimate presupposition to the test, and fundamentally it doesn't it it falls apart. And that's yeah. what you have to do with everybody's worldview. So now so now I, I know a common criticism of presuppositional apologetics is you start with your with your starting point, the unbeliever starts with their starting point. And they tried to build a consistent system out of that. And so now you have two systems warring against one another. 
Um, how do you break the tie? I mean, you have your fun, you have your foundation. He has his foundation. You can't use evidence, you know, in isolation since they're going to interpret the evidence in light of their their undergirding worldview. How do we break that that tie, so to speak, between two worldviews that are standing firm on their foundation? Well, I think what you find happening is is that it's it's uh, Greg Bonson used to call it forcing the antithesis. That is, okay, this is your operating assumption. Let's take let's take morality for example, um, and say you know someone says, well, in the atheistic worldview, we can we're more we're moral. And I said, well, how do you and on what basis are you moral? Well, we do moral things and say, well. Um, what kind of moral things do you do? We don't murder. And I say, well, why is that morally wrong given your atheistic, materialistic, evolutionary assumptions? So what I'm doing, I'm forcing the unbeliever to live consistently with that proposition. I said, isn't evolution based upon nature, red in tooth and claw? Didn't we get here by uh, lower forms, killing and eating other lower forms? So wasn't didn't we get here through violence and so forth? And so th that's one one way you can force the antithesis. And then someone says, "Well, I think we all should do what we should do, uh, as long as as long as um, uh, we consent. If two people consent on something; it's okay to do." I said, where, where, where did you get that operating assumption? Based on what? And then I would give the example of this uh, German fellow who. Uh, advertised uh, for somebody responses, positive responses who would be willing to be to consent to be killed and eaten by this guy. And so he picked one of them. He's, the fellow smoked and the taste better. And they literally, he literally sat down with this fellow, plied him with alcohol and began to cut pieces of his, his own body. And now this, the fellow who, who had put the ad in the paper was found out about this, and the question was, what did he do wrong? Because the fellow who was who was willing to be cooked, killed, and and cooked and eaten, consented to it, mm. and the court had a real problem with this because they have built this premise on this idea of consensuality, and given their worldview, they couldn't say it was morally wrong. So the only thing they could say is is that this guy was mentally ill. Right. So th th what you have to do when you have these two operating worldviews and basic presuppositional basis for those worldviews. You have to push, force the antithesis. Now, in the long run, ultimately it comes down to God changing a person's heart. A person lives is living, cons trying to live consistently with it, and they become as they become more and more consistent with it. They begin to see how their worldview begins to fall apart, and they cry out. In, in a redemptive way because they're left with not anything. This is one of Francis Schaeffer's illustrations was, is that when you, and he was kind of a, he was kind of an operational presuppositionalist and because he went to, he studied under Van Til for, Cornelius Van Til for a while. And he says, you don't, you don't take a guy out on a limb and then saw that limb off without some way to be rescued. And so when a person, when you force a person to live consistently with their operating presuppositions, you've got to give them the remedy. Here, here's, here's the medicine for your, operate, for your worldview. And that medicine is the person and work of Jesus Christ who changes your heart and your mind and everything about you. 
And so it all it ultimately comes down to the Holy Spirit changing the person's heart. What our yeah. job is is just to force the force the antithesis, uh, force them to live consistently with their operating worldview, and then present the gospel to them and leave the rest to God. Yeah. Now you used a, a phrase which uh, those who are uh, I guess presuppositionally initiated into <laughs> this whole topic. You used the phrase a couple of minutes back, the impossibility of the contrary. You want to kind of explain where that's coming from. How, as a presuppositionalist, would you provide a positive case for the truth of the Christian worldview and kind of explore how that language fits into how you would do that? Well, the impossibility of the contrary, you get you get rid of God. Uh, what do you have left? How, how do you know anything is true about anything? Uh, and their particular worldview just can't exist with without borrowing capital from the Christian worldview, the idea of morality, the idea that there's such a thing as murder, there's such a thing as stealing, all these types of things. It's borrowed from the Christian worldview. Uh, Van Til uses the illustration of a young child sitting on her grandfather's lap, and he's, and she slaps slaps the grandfather across the face. The only way that she can slap the grandfather across the, pl the, the face is because she's sitting on her grandfather's lap. Mm -hmm. If there was no grandfather or no lap, there's nothing. You can't slap anything, and so you just again the it's their particular worldview just can't stand on its own. So you're forcing them, you're forcing them to you know to live consistently with it, which they cannot do. Now you said they can't know anything for certain without the Christian God. Now of course the the natural response would be, well I know a whole bunch of things. How can you say I know nothing? You know for one thing. I, one thing I can know for certain is that I exist, and I know this for certain because I have to exist even to deny it. So how, how would you begin to critique this idea where they kind of give some pushback as to, you know, you're making the claim, I can't have certain knowledge about anything unless your God exists. It's, yeah, I, it's, yeah, it's, it's accounting for that, for that okay. knowledge. You say you exist. Uh, yeah, you say you exist, but based upon what operating assumption do you exist? The impossibility of the contrary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just you you know, all these things that are out there that you that they know. Uh, why do they know those things? On what basis do they know those things? Uh, God has given them a mind. Uh, they God has given them the ability to reason. Uh, you know, God has given them eyes to see and ears to hear and all those types of things. You ha they have to account for that. And then if they say, well, we've evolved over a period of time, then. Then you really push them back and say, okay, how do you account for the stuff of the cosmos, which they can't? Mm -hmm. How do you account for the programming of the cosmos? How do you account for the DNA that's in, that's in you and me? Uh, where did all this stuff come from? They, they cannot account for it. You talk to any evolutionist, and they will say, here are the theories for it, but they can't, using the scientific method, actually account for the types of things that they are presupposing about their worldview mm -hmm. okay now we have five minutes until 6 30 now we're going to switch gears and focus in on a little bit of of eschatology and i want to kind of bridge that gap but before we get there there was another question that i wanted to ask um and this relates to common misconceptions about presuppositional apologetics is that those presuppositionalists don't use evidence um and so can you explain for us how does the use of evidence fit within the framework of a presuppositionalist methodology, and are some of the traditional arguments for God's existence some way, is there a valid way of using those within a presuppositional framework, or are they, you know, 
kind of they can't be reconciled um, since they're come from different methodologies. How would you explain that? Well, I, I use I use them all, but the the, the fundamental it's like building a house. The, fun, the if you don't have a good foundation, the 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 structure of the house isn't going to stand. Sure. Uh, if, so the the idea of these operating presuppositions, uh, for example, the the uh, Jesus used evidences at his own on his own resurrection. Mm-hmm. He, he meets Thomas. Thomas is a skeptic. You know, he, he doesn't believe. Jesus shows up and he gives him evidences. Right. And he's, you know, look at, you know, put your finger in my hand, put your hand in my side. Don't be unbelieving, but be, be believing. But that, but that all make that those evidences make only make sense within the context of a of a God who can create man out of the dust of the ground, can call the cosmos into existence by his word and it can raise dead people it can raise dead people from the dead make them alive so those evidences are within that particular context mm-hmm. um, s- someone else might say well you know strange things happen in the world you know i guess some sometimes dead men come back from you know come back from the dead but there's no accounting for that within their operating world within their operating worldview Mm-hmm. The Christian, on the other hand, he can account for dead men coming back to life, uh, because God is a is a life giving God. Create, you know, brought Lazarus from the dead. That all makes sense within the context of a of a, um, uh, a Christian worldview. So, okay, so I know a lot of people who do apologetics, and they kind of grapple with the two methodologies, and they'd be like, you know, I really love using the cosmological argument, and and some people think that if you adopt a presuppositional method, you have to now throw away all of those other things. Real briefly, how might a presuppositionalist use a cosmological argument as part of, you know, in a consistent way? Well, cosmo- yeah, cosmological argument is, is the cosmos exists, therefore some, something must have brought it into existence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, that's okay, I can, I can work with that. So given your assumptions, how did this happen? Mm. And, uh, they can't account for it. I mean, right. I, I mean, I, I've read a lot of atheist material over the years and evolutionist stuff and so forth. They all admit they really they don't know how the universe came into existence. They mm. will take it. They will take it back to an atom-sized molecule and say that was the that was the the beginning of the universe and the entire universe, the Big Bang, exploded from this compressed molecule see they can't take it back to nothing they they take it back to that particular molecule and I, I say okay i can work with that so you're saying that the entire universe that we know today was compressed into this pea-sized marble-sized entity that exploded into what we see today so where did that come from what is the basis of all that and then then they have to then they have to determine uh, okay uh, this was a superheated mass that would have killed all of what would con- consist of life. How did life arise uh, from uh, you know, from these chemicals, mm-hmm. which, you, by the way, you can't account for? Uh, wh- where's the programming for all these types of things? Yeah. And so I just you just keep pushing them back. And so I can start with a cosmological argument and still get them all the way back to the idea you have to you have to figure out how these things came into existence. 
my conception is based upon what the Bible has to say, God brought these into existence. Right. And I can I can account for the stuff of the universe. I can account for the the programming of the universe. I can account for the morality of the universe. I can account for the mind of the universe and in all, all of God's creatures. All those things make sense within my worldview. They don't make sense in your worldview. So, so uh, for those who are familiar with these kinds of methodological debates and things like that, one need not start with a transcendental argument to get where you need to go with the unbeliever. Because yeah, I think a lot of popularizers do. Yeah, you got yeah, to. Yeah, you got yeah, to talk. You got to begin where someone. Is. Some look. Somebody may come to you and say, "I, I just, uh, I just lost lost my wife." Sure. Well, you're not going to you're not going to go all the way back and you know, start some. You know, philosophical apologetic. You're gonna you're gonna talk to this this person and and talk the grief where they are on things, what their understanding of things are. Uh, there's we're human beings. We're we're made up of more than just matter, and uh, more than just brain. Uh, there's more to us than that. So, but ultimately, ultimately, to get a person with with you know, in a right relationship with God, you're going to have to take them back to the very beginning. You can't leave them just with evidences and leave them just with, with logic. You've got to take them back to the, to the, to the person who actually makes these, all, th all these things possible. Right. right. All right. Well, let's make a transition. Thank you for that. That's really good. I think people find that helpful. Um, let's kind of bridge the connection here. So the original kind of intent of this was to talk a little bit about apologetics and then to kind of transition into a topic which most people don't think are connected. Um, but I think that's the beauty of systematic theology. Everything in theology is connected with, with, with everything, everything else. So um, let's try to make that transition between apologetics and eschatology. So eschatology being the study of, of last things, of end times or however people define it. How can someone be... How can someone connect apologetics with the topic of eschatology? The Bible itself does this. The apostle, apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, he's, he's dealing with, uh, let's see if I can find this here, 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, uh, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Okay, so somebody, someone is a skeptic at this point. Someone is, is mocking something, and what are they mocking? They're mocking what Jesus said earlier, that certain things would take place before that particular generation passed away. And here, the, that generation is about to pass away. If Jesus uh, gave the prophecy in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, uh, uh, around A.D. 30, in a generation in Matthew chapter 24, 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So you're looking at a 40-year period. Peter is probably writing early part of this, the A.D. 60s, and the temple is still standing. Matthew 24 deals with the temple, the destruction of the temple, and Herod's temple was beautiful. I mean, it was, I mean, the, the construction of the temple, and here it was completed sometime in the 60s. And uh, so these skeptics probably, my guess is probably Jews, and, and who we have to remember that Jews were the first ones to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, and there were those Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And you read the book of Acts, and you'll find, uh, at least early on, the, the, the greatest 
threat that the church had was against fellow Jews, Paul being the perfect example of that, Saul being the perfect example of that. So at this particular period in time, uh, near AD 70, the temple's still standing. I mean, looking stately as ever. Uh, and so they, they mocked what Jesus had said about the, the, the last days, the last days of the old covenant. And so uh, you have to deal with, with that from a biblical perspective. And so and here's, here's a relationship between evidences and presuppositions. Presupposition is Jesus said all these things would happen before their generation passed away. This generation refers to the generation to whom they're speaking. Now what I have to do is I have to give the evidences within what Jesus has to say to make my case. So you got the basic assumption, Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And now there are all, all these things that are supposed to take place. I have to deal with those things individually. And that's what I've done in Last Day's Madness in my, in my other books, War of the, uh, War of the see, Wars and Rumors of Wars and Is Jesus Coming Soon? Uh, because skeptics have looked at Matthew chapter 24, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And it talks about the gospel being preached in the whole world, uh, the abomination of desolation, uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, sun, moon, and stars language. And they'll say, look, Jesus was wrong. Those things did not take place before that generation passed away. Therefore, Jesus was a false prophet. And be, if Jesus was a false prophet on on three gigantic chapters in the New Testament, and he was wrong about that, that he didn't come like he said he was to come in that, before that generation passed away, then who knows what else he was wrong about. Right. So eschatology and apologetics are a very important uh, uh, issue that you have to deal with when it, when it comes to skeptics. Sure. So um, chapters like Matthew 24, Luke 21, uh, I, think, I think it's Mark, Mark 13. Mark 13, yes. Mark 13. Um, a lot of people associate the Olivet Discourse, um, which is the longest um, prophetic utterance uh, made by Jesus. Many people associate that with signs of uh, that would be pointing uh, towards the coming rapture, right? Right, yes. Now, from your position, you're popularly known as a partial preterist. How would you understand that? Maybe you can define for us what partial preterism is and kind of give us your brief understanding of, of Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13 and kind of take it from there. What's well, your understanding of those? A, pre a preterist is, I'm looking at Matthew chapter 24, uh, and Jesus said uh, the gospel has, Jesus said the gospel has to be preached in the whole world uh, to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Right. And you look at that passage. And a futurist, someone who's a futurist would say that hasn't taken place yet. Right. Uh, and but Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, 34 says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And since verse 14 is before verse 34, if Jesus is right in thir verse 34, Matthew chapter 24, 14 must have been fulfilled before that generation passed away. And so I believe that Jesus was absolutely correct. The gospel was supposed to be preached in the whole world. And we can talk about what he really, what he was really saying there uh, before that generation passed away. Uh, therefore, it's in the past. That fulfillment of that passage is in the past. It doesn't mean we don't preach, still preach the gospel. 
But the context of Matthew 24 is the destruction of the temple, that the disciples, Jesus and the disciples came out of the temple in Matthew 23. And Jesus said, your house is being left to you desolate. And the disciples point out the temple building to Jesus. And Jesus says, not one stone here will be left upon another. They will all be torn down. And then Jesus gives his discourse, and he says all these things will take place before that particular generation passed away. That, and that's what made me believe the Bible more than anything else, because sure. after I read Marcellus Kick's book on Matthew 24, well, sure, everything Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 took place. Now, when, the, when I first read the New Testament after becoming a Christian, uh, and, and back in the 1970s, when the late great planet Earth was 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 popular, selling about 25 million copies, I, and I read Matthew 24, and that's why it seems like Jesus is saying all these things are supposed to take place before that generation passed away. I couldn't figure out how that was the case, but after reading Marcellus Kick's book, I was convinced everything Jesus said took place before that generation passed away, and. And people who don't believe that have to do all kinds of exegetical gymnastics in order to get it to say something different from what Jesus was saying. Yeah. And so it answers the skeptics. Uh, there was a debate with um, Christopher Hitchens, the anti-theist uh, Christopher Hitchens with Douglas Wilson. And one of the questions came up about eschatology. And within just a few minutes, Doug, Doug Wilson was able to refute what um, Christopher Hitchens was saying by this preterist argument. No, Jesus isn't describing the end of the world. He's describing the old covenant order where the temple was, in fact, the, 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 the centerpiece of all of that. Uh, and so when you understand that context, Matthew 24 makes perfect sense. Right. Now, okay, so, uh, so when we say we are partial preterists, we understand certain parts of Scripture as already being fulfilled, uh, most of the time, the parts that we say are already fulfilled are what many people think are still in the future. Right. Um, so we don't want to make the mistake of, of um, um, understanding partial preterism with, with another position known as full preterism. What's, what's the difference there between those well, two? A full, a full preterist, and they're, you know, I'm simplifying this because there are lots of different full preterist positions. And I'm, I don't... I, I couldn't go through all of them because I don't know all of them. Sure. Uh, but basically, a full preterist says all of the prophetic passages in the New Testament were fulfilled uh, in the lead up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It's all all in the path. Um, and that there are no passages that have anything to do with the second coming, what we would call the second coming. Yeah. There are a number of passages that I just haven't been able to figure out yet, although full preterists, you know, argue that they have figured them out. Um, I'm not convinced of, of that. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four is a passage that they say uh, merges with, Ma with Matthew chapter 24, that Jesus is talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, although the same words don't seem to be used, and there's some other aspects of, of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 that are different. Uh, Revelation 20 is a difficult passage as, as well. So 1 Thessalonians 15. So these are passages that I continue to work on, uh, and I'm not going to take the wholesale position of a full preterist position unless I am thoroughly convinced of that particular position. 
Uh, and I know there'll be some alumni are full preterists who will say, well, Gary, it's, the evidence is all there and so forth and so on. Uh, and, you know, that's okay. Uh, I'm, that's just the position I'm hold, uh, that I'm holding. But here's the thing, another part of the, of the full preterist position and the futurist position uh, and that they forget what, there's nothing in between. Full preterists really don't have anything after AD 70. Uh, I believe that the Bible applies to every area of life and it applies in a worldview way. Uh, and so even if, even if I were to take a full preterist position on particular passages, I could not give up the biblical premise that the Bible applies to every area of life. So there are things beyond AD 70 that full preterists just don't account for and don't deal with. They're so focused on their full preterist position that they have become in some cases as irrelevant as some dispensationalists have who say nothing is important until after the rapture. Um, and so I have not seen a worked out uh, biblical world and life view from full preterists. Um, and part of it is, is because they see everything as stopping uh, uh, at 87, I have a good I have a good friend who calls himself a consistent preterist, and okay. uh, that he sees that there's still the outworking of God's word in every area of life, not just bringing people to Christ, but actually the Bible applies in the area of economics and government, uh, of politics, art, music, and so forth and so on. Uh, and unfortunately, there are those on full preterist side, the futurist dispensational side and a lot of others in between who have really um, minimized the, the impact the Bible is supposed to have on our life post AD 70 and pre second and second coming. Yeah. Now I know an important uh, element within es eschatology are those time texts, you know, the near, the soon, Revelation 1, 3, uh, Hebrews, you know, the last days, things like that. And I know, uh, when partial preterists and full preterists are in dialogue, there's a lot of talk about these these time texts. How might one uh, who holds to a partial preterist perspective, how might one differentiate between events that have time texts attached to them and events that the full preterist thinks, hey, here's a time text that has to be al already fulfilled. How does a partial preterist know how to make that differentiation or that cutoff point where this time text applies to this event, but clearly not that event over there? Well, I think when you have a time text, this generation will not pass away near, shortly, quickly, at hand. Uh, those time texts, I, I think those those are events that were near, short, shortly to take place to happen quickly and soon. Uh, if there's there are prophetic passages that don't have any time indicators attached to them, uh, then that I think that's where that's probably where partial preterists and full preterists disagree. But if there's a there's a time text, uh, it's when it says near, shortly, quickly, whatever the case might be, those I believe those passages refer to the events leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in AD 70. So in Revelation, where it speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, uh, do you see that as a future, uh, kind of a description of, of a future reality or something that was within the context of maybe perhaps a metaphorically to be understood by the first recipients of, of the book of Revelation, since you have those time texts in the beginning, the middle and towards the end? Yeah, I, of course, I believe that those those passages refer to the events of the new covenant 
because we're because we're given other indicators within the Bible itself. For example, Hebrews chapter twelve. Yeah, very well. You got Galatians chapter four, the Jerusalem above, and you have you have Hebrews Hebrews chapter twelve about the essentially the new you know the new Jerusalem as well. And and the writer of Hebrews and Paul sees those things as being um, applicational to the the new covenant at that particular period of time. Uh, and uh, others have, have made the same case with Matthew chapter five verses seventeen through nineteen. Uh, John Brown, for example, John Owen saw the um, passing away of heaven and earth. There was the passing away of the old covenant, uh, and uh, that that type of language is used by Peter in Second Peter chapter three as well. You find it also in Isaiah chapter sixty-five and sixty-six. There, look, there, there's there is a lot of uh, in Scripture that we just have not mined well enough. We're uh, we're we're playing catch up when it comes not catch up cats up, but catch up catch up in terms of catching up on our eschatological perspectives because. The if you if you if you look at the, if you look at the creeds and confessions, well, look at the creeds. They say almost nothing about es eschatology other than Jesus will come again to judge the quick and the dead. The details of that were, have never been worked out. Even the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which I'm uh, being a Presbyterian Church in America, sub uh, subscribe to, uh, but it's I believe it's weak in the area of eschatology. Uh, it's 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 post millennial and it's it's millennial view in the uh, larger catechism question number one ninety one, and it deals with the antichrist, which the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith has been um, uh, redef had redefined the antichrist. Uh, typically, the antichrist was defined as the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, uh, that's and I know most of the reformers held that particular view, but that's not a biblical definition of antichrist. So we, there's still a lot of work to do. But I'm friends with a lot of full preterists. I know a lot of people think that's a terrible thing to be because they're heretics. Sorry, I try to be friends with lots of people uh, on these issues because people are working working through these issues. Sure. Uh, and uh, if 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 you shut people off. It's kind of like when, when when kids were prohibited from smoking cigarettes, they're going to go try to f find cigarettes and and uh, because it is taboo. Look, if, if your position can't stand on its own, then there's something wrong with your position. I like to engage with everybody because I like to learn. I'm you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I don't know everything, but I'm I'm open to people uh, you know teaching me whatever I can be taught. Sure. Now, r one last question on full preterism, and I ha I think I'm going to kind of shift. Because I think my next question, I think, is very important for people to, to know. Now, when you when you compare partial preterism and full preterism, if partial preterism isn't shocking enough for some people, <laughs> um, when you take a look at full preterism, and I don't, I don't, I know you know a lot of full preterists, and I don't mean to, you know, put you in the corner, but would you consider full preterism a heresy? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, some of some of the full preterist positions I've I've listened to and heard, uh, it, it, if they're not, it's not heresy. It's it's a lot of it's just plain wacko. Uh, and there there are numerous full preterist positions. Um, um, so I'm I'm not the person. And I always tell people, look, if you want to you want to deal with this in a uh, an ecclesiastical way, you'd have to make the case. That's not my job to say it's heresy. I try to maintain friendships 
with with the look. I, I'm I'm friends with uh, dispensationalists. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think dispensationalism is almost on the verge of heretical. If you really if you really sat down and thought about it, mm -hmm. uh, the action that there are two peoples of God and that the the church is going to be taken off the earth before a seven year tribulation period. There's a gap between the sixth and sixty ninth and the seventieth week. All these things that have to be done. But I'm still friends with them because uh, I just think it's counterproductive to start hurling the the the, the heresy epithet at, at people. I don't think it's productive at all. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, now, my next question I think is very important for people to understand because a lot of people are caught up in, you know, studying eschatology. I don't even call it studying if you leave out what I'm about to ask is – um, what is the significance of understanding the Old Testament when trying to tackle the eschatological material in the New Testament? Because a lot of people, they'll just stay in the New Testament. They don't really, you know, they don't really go into any in-depth study of the Old Testament. And they kind of lack an, an understanding of how that might enrich their, their look into the New Testament material. What would you say to that? Well, you've got to go to the Old Testament. I mean, you, you cannot understand the book of Revelation if you don't know the Old Testament, I mean, the book of Ezekiel is quoted throughout. Uh, uh, there are allusions to the Old Testament. You got, you got Jezebel, you got Gog and Magog at the end of Revelation chapter 20. The idea of a new Jerusalem, Isaiah 65, 66. I mean, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't understand, you cannot understand the New Testament. Mm. You, you can't understand what Jesus is, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, 24. Uh, for example, when he says, um, uh, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, then the stars will fall from heaven. Uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, uh, a great trumpet, and, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of, end of heaven to the other. Those are direct quotations from the Old Testament. So what you have to do is you've got to go back to the Old Testament and figure out what they meant back there. And one of the, one of the most interesting ones is... Uh, the passage where Jesus talks about this, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And most people read that and they say, well, that's Jesus coming down to earth and set up his millennial kingdom. But it's a direct quotation from, from uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And if you go and read Daniel 7, verse 13, you will see that the Son of Man is coming up to the Ancient of Days. So he's not coming down to earth, he's going up. And even Tim LaHaye in, in the LaHaye Study Bible makes that point that this is this is a reference to what something Jesus was saying, what 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 was said in the Old Testament. So uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is Gog and the, the Gog and Magog prophecy, I've written a book about that. Um, the uh, and it's it's a unique book. You had asked me about which books I, I'm really proud of. Uh, doing the research on that was 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 a great. I, I loved it because I, I found things that I have found no one else actually dealt with before. So if you don't know the Old Testament, you really don't know the New Testament very well. Right, right. Now, okay, so here's another, here's another question that I think a lot of people are confused when they're trying to understand this idea of the second coming, uh, Jesus coming in judgment against Jerusalem in AD 70. How do we differentiate the comings in Scripture that relate to the judgment coming on Jerusalem and the actual second coming of Christ. Well, in Matthew twenty-four, it's it's not it's not talking about either one. Uh, and and actually, if you if you look at Matthew twenty-four verse twenty-seven, 
For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay. That, that is the, that's the judgment coming passage. So you got that particular passage in verse 27, which is a judgment coming, because the very next verse is wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And the idea of lightning and so forth and so on. Uh, the Greek word that's used there is different from the one that's used in uh, Matthew chapter 24, 34, where this, uh, ver I'm sorry, 24, 30, where the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days. So again, it, it all depends on the context, because in the book of Revelation, in three places in the book of Revelation, to three specific churches, you see uh, the threat of judgment coming. That's neither the A.D. 70 destruction of Jerusalem judgment coming uh, or the, um, uh, the what we would call the second coming. Those are local judgments upon those particular churches if they don't get their act together. Mm. The same thing in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, where God comes on a cloud uh, uh, to Egypt and it says that the idols will, uh, uh, I think it says, I forget the passage, but uh, at, you know, at his presence. And so that's a judgment coming. And then Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 34 as well. So there are, all, there are lots of these judgment comings in the Old Testament. Micah, Micah chapter 1 is another one. Micah chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. God comes down on the high places and says the mountains melt like wax. Uh, that's a judgment coming. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it just depends on the context. Now, what um, I, I guess a lot, I, I remember when I first heard these things, my, my question was, okay, I understand what you're saying, but what specific passages actually refer to the second coming? Well, the, the ones that a lot, of, a lot of partial preterists use would be Acts, the Acts chapter 1, uh, first, I think I mentioned First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, um, uh, I guess First Corinthians 15, um, I'm just trying to think if, uh, I think those, those are the major ones where a partial preterist, someone like Ken Gentry would apply to the, uh, the second coming. Uh, Ken and I disagree on where Matthew 24 divides. Uh, Marcellus Kick took the position that the division between the uh, coming of judgment against Jerusalem in AD 70 uh, uh, ends at verse 34, uh, and at verse 35, the second coming picks up where it says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus is saying that all refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Uh, Marcellus Kick and someone like Ken Gentry would say that's referring to the second coming. And so from after uh, after those verses, so, ver so yeah, after, ver verse, after verse 34, beginning with verse 35 of Matthew 24 and going into chapter 25, uh, Ken Gentry would say that th those passages and at the end of chapter uh, 25 those passages refer to the second coming and what's your position your position, my position says my position which is a position that john gill baptist uh, uh commentator held he believed that it that it just continues that uh, and i have a chapter on that perspective in my book last day's madness oh what chapter is that do you remember the chapter it's okay uh, if you know, right? that's something uh, I, I want to look I'm, up I'm gonna guess it's either chapter 
uh, thir- 13 or, or, or 15, I can't remember. It's on the new heavens and new earth. Sure. Um, and uh, uh, so Ken and, <laughs> Ken and I disagree on that. Ken's a good friend. So here we go. Ken and I disagree on that. We're, we're good friends. He's going to sure. do a commentary. Well, one, of the, one of the interesting things about this, which helped change my mind about it, was a passage out of Luke chapter 17. I don't know if you're familiar with this argument at all. Okay. Uh, Luke 17, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. Uh, you will see some of the same sign passages in uh, Luke 17 that you find in Matthew 24. Which which verse is that? 17, verse what? Uh, Luke 17, verses, uh, let me get into the frame here. And get some light on this. Luke 17, verse 22. Okay. Um, and then you go down uh, a couple of passages where it says uh, about the day of Lot uh, and, and so forth. So you see this. You see, there are about five or six different signs that you find in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, that occur before verse 34 and some of them that occur after verse 34. And so uh, I, I, one of my books, uh, I don't know if I can find it. Hold on real fast. Hold on. Oh, take your time. Don't worry. Technology's wonderful. I wrote a book called Prophecy Wars. Okay. Uh, and it was I had a debate with a, with a couple of guys, um, and there's a there's a I don't know if you'll be able to see that. I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll I'll fax you this. I'll send you a copy of this page. Sure. So Matthew chapter 24 verses one through four. Uh, so verses 17 through 18, 26 through 27. 24 through 28 in Matthew occur in Luke verses uh, uh, 23 and 2024 and and so forth. And so what this chart shows is, is that the passage of Matthew 24 verses 35 and 36, some of the verses in Matthew chapter 24, which are before verse 34, occur in Luke's version of this after verse 34. And so Jesus doesn't seem to be making a distinction between certain of these passages. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's made a, it made a very big impact on me. And uh, like I say, I'll, I'll send you this and you can, you can sure. see it for yourself. And this All is right. not unique to me. I, I forget who, who it was that put that chart together. I just did a more refined chart of it. Yeah. Uh, so what you do is you read through Matthew, uh, Luke 17, uh, 22 through 20 through 37, and then look at Matthew chapter 24 before verse before verse 34 and after verse 34, and you will see that there's a mixture of the two, and which means that some of those events took place after verse 30, 34, and therefore they must this this must be a transition all the way through chapter. All the way through chapter 25, but I have a chapter on this whole thing in uh, my book, Last Day's Madness. Yeah. All right. Well, we're at the end of the hour, and um, 
it went by fast, right? <laughs> yeah, it always does. It always um, does. Because I can, I can talk about this stuff forever, but I know you're a busy guy. I really do appreciate your time. And um, I will um, let you know when this gets posted. And if you want to kind of maybe do a comment, you might want to interact with some folks. It's up to you. Um, but what, is there any last thing you'd like to say uh, to anybody that might be listening to this? Well, if anyone is interested in any of my books on prophecy, they can go to AmericanVision.org, AmericanVision.org, Last Day's Madness. I, I don't know if this book, uh, war, uh, Worldview, uh, Prophecy Wars, is still in print or not. Uh, but they're all on, on that site. And uh, if you go to American Vision um, website, I post an article five days a week, and some of them are on Bible prophecy. I'll have, in fact, I just did a video today uh, on Bible prophecy. I'm going to be doing a whole series uh, on the topic in the next week or so. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate right. your time. Thank you. All right. You take care. God bless. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can... Um, uh, Help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealed apologetics, paypal.me slash revealed apologetics. And that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we, we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, and um, once again, if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, revealed apologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless. Thank you.